If you will, take your Bibles with me this morning and turn to Romans chapter 11. We will conclude this final chapter of Israelology, and not only the final chapter of Israelology, but the final chapter of what has been systematic theology throughout the entire book of Romans. Next week, we will move on into the application. Now, what do we do about it? But in the process, Paul stops. He could have ended last week easily and would have been uh, just to do so, and yet he adds this passage that we are going to study today where he bows his knee, considers what he has spoken about, especially over the last three chapters and the chapters before that, and recognizes God's plan is perfect. And he stands in awe. Paul is almost speechless as he gives us these few words here at the end of the chapter. And it was one year ago today, well, actually two days from now, one year ago this week, that we stood at the doorway of this incredible book. One year ago today, we introduced, one year ago this week, I'm going to get that all messed up, we introduced the book of Romans. We were preparing to take the challenge that is the book of Romans, filled with its theology, filled with its practicality, And now one year later, I want to remind you of a few of the words I borrowed from another to begin this book. And that is, Romans is a classic. To the unsaved, it offers a clear exposition of their sinful, lost condition and God's righteous plan for saving them. To new believers, they learn of their identification with Christ and victory through the power of the Holy Spirit. And to mature believers... They find a never-ending delight in its wide spectrum of Christian truth. Today, we are at that wide spectrum of Christian truth as we prepare to praise God for all that has been found in the theology portion of this book. My hope is that in this past year, you have been found growing in Christ. Developing an understanding of the theology that it takes for us to grow as believers. But in the process, I hope that we will agree that we will continue to find never-ending delight in this book's wide spectrum of Christian truth. And to that end, Paul bursts out in uncontained doxology. And this should be the heartbeat and the cry of every single one of us. Because what Paul has brought us to, if you have not been confronted with the awe of who our God is, through these last three chapters especially, then I have not done my job and you have not done your job in studying it. We should be standing in awe of who our God is. So this morning, having read the text that we are going to look at this morning, let's go to our Lord's to our Lord in prayer and ask His blessing on our time in it. Father, we do thank You and praise You for the opportunity that we have to bow our heads before You today. It is with tremendous joy that we consider the reality of where we have been throughout this book. Lord, it is surprising to me as I look back in the records that it has been one year ago this week that we started on this journey looking into this incredible, marvelous book. We have learned much. We have not even retained as much as we have learned, I am sure. But I pray that this book would continue to reveal itself in a marvelous way to each and every one of us, wherever we are at in our Christian walk. But today, 
Today we want to give you glory. We want to exalt your name over all names. We want to recognize that your plans are perfect. That you alone are the creator God. That you alone hold the responsibility for our salvation. And for Jewish redemption. And for the fulfillment of the promises made to Israel. When we stand at this side of the door, halfway through, more than halfway through this book, I pray that your name would be exalted among us today. Give me the words to say, give our hearts an understanding of it, so that when we leave here today, we are confronted with who you are, and we should stand in awe. Lord, that is our heart's desire, that is my desire, as the preacher of your word today, and may it be so, according to your will. Lord, we love you and thank you for it. In your son's name we pray, amen. Paul could have left off last week and not added another word to this chapter and you and I would have had all we needed to know uh, about Israelology. And yet, Paul could have moved right into chapter 12, but he would not have shown that there is a significant response to the details of these last three chapters. And it doesn't matter whether you are Israelite or whether you are a Gentile. It doesn't matter matter whether you are in this age or in the age to come, we should bring glory to our Lord. And it is interesting to me that as we begin to look at this, that so many view Scripture with a redemptive plan, that God's plan was only redemption. And we have discussed this throughout these three chapters. But that is not how Paul ends. Paul does not give glory for salvation alone. He gives glory to the Lord because of God's plan his fulfillment in bringing about the promises made to Israel. And because of that, you and I who are Gentiles have security in our faith. And so therefore, Paul falls in praise and worship of our Lord. And so that is where we are going. It moves right to the heart of this apostle. It stirs within him the recognition of God's overarching plans and purposes in all things. And that is to bring glory to himself. So we begin with this, Paul bursting out in praise. And I love it when Paul does this, because Paul is so systematized. He is so organized. And then all of a sudden, wham, he's bursting out in praise. He can't contain it anymore. And he does this different times throughout his books. He does it in Ephesians. He's done it here in Romans now. It is an exciting thing when the Apostle Paul gets excited about what he is going through as he is systematizing it. He's going, look at God's marvelous plan. How can you help not to worship and glorify His name? And then we're going to move on to... The reality that Paul wants us to understand in his praise. One is that God is indeed sovereign. God is indeed sovereign. He answers to no one. He is sovereign. And then he boils us down to this point. And notice what is missing here. We don't see redemption. It is contained within here. But he says his second point, or our third point this morning, is the centrality of God in all things. God is central in everything. And if we understand these two aspects, that God is indeed sovereign, and that God is indeed central to everything, then it is going to affect the way you walk out those doors in a few moments. It's going to change the way you view God's Word. And instead of viewing the theology as the the dry encumbrance that many in our culture do, you will see why Paul turns his theology into doxology his theology into praise, because that is what motivates him. That is what drives him. And we're going to start with that as we look at Paul's praise. 
Theology becomes doxology, verse 33. And by the way, I've borrowed that phrase from Warren Wearsby. Theology becomes doxology. So here we are in verse 33 of chapter 11, and the Scripture says, Oh, the depth of His riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and unfathomable His ways. You see, Paul has come through these three chapters, and he is overwhelmed by the joy and the awe as he reflects over the work of the Lord. Remember what prompted chapter 9. What prompted chapter 9 was chapter 8. And in chapter 8, Paul tells us that the Lord works together all things for good to those who love Him and are called according to His purposes. And then he moves on and he says, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. And then he moves on and says, just for proof of that, I want you to understand that we can look to Israel and recognize that God is indeed faithful to His Word. So what is it that provides our salvation is God's trustworthiness, His faithfulness, and that has already been demonstrated for us by Israel. And then Paul moves through this, and he's understanding the promises that have been made, and he's revealing to you and I how God is working through this age to bring Israel back to restoration. And Paul comes to this point. And he says, oh, the depth of the riches, the wisdom and knowledge of God. We can't even begin to understand who God is. And to Paul, all the build up to this point reminds Paul that he cannot comprehend God. It is beyond his ability to understand who God is. And Wiersbe's statement, theology becomes doxology, is a recognition of true worship. What amazes me is Paul is not motivated by good music. He's not driven by the beat. He's driven by his theology. It is scary in our world today how many pastors do not have a theology book on their shelf. Who do not use it in their study. And yet that is what motivates Paul's worship. How can we worship without an understanding of theology? How can you worship without understanding that you can't understand God? That's where Paul is at. And that understanding has brought him to the place where he is not motivated by music, but he is rather motivated by good theology to worship and to bring glory to God. General facts of human learning may be acquired by the usual means, but spiritual truths are apprehended only as taught to the individual heart, by the Spirit of God, through His Word, and in His theology that is found in His Word. That's what Schaefer says. When we begin to know God, and to know His wisdom is beyond our human capabilities, then and only then will you stand humble before Him. And that is where Paul is at. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, they are unsearchable in His judgments. They are unfathomable in His ways. When we realize the power, the planning, and the structure of the theology of God, we will begin to realize that we know very little of Him. And the recognition of our own frailties will bring us an understanding that we, what we do know about God should cause us to worship Him. As Paul does. Oh, the depth of his riches. MacArthur likens Paul's description as being on top of Mount Everest. 
And that is the same feeling we get from the, the hymn writer of the hymn we just sang. It is the same emotion. It is the same physical response. It is the same mental accepting of who God is. And MacArthur says, like a mountain climber who has reached the summit of Mount Everest, the apostle can only stand awestruck at God's beauty and majesty. Can't even say anything. He is stunned. Oh, the depths of God. Unable to further explain an infinite and holy God to finite and sinful men, he can only acknowledge that God's judgments are unsearchable and His ways unfathomable. And that leads Paul to this, a reason to ascribe glory. A reason to ascribe glory. It says, oh, the depth of His wisdom and knowledge. How unsearchable are His judgments and unfathomable are His ways. These two words for unsearchable and unfathomable are nearly identical. In the original language, they are nearly the exact same word. Unsearchable is a very good translation. Unfathomable, we don't really use that word in our culture very much, but it means to be untraceable. Untraceable. And it is similar to uh, what a hunter would experience when he's looking for the tracks of his prey. God's ways are untrackable. They are, they are not ways that you can understand. You can't go ahead of Him and, and defeat where He is going because God knows all things. And the psalmist agrees with this and he says in Psalm seventy-seven, nineteen, Your way was in the sea and your paths in the mighty water and your footprints may not be known. You see, God's ways are untraceable because man cannot even begin to fathom them, begin to comprehend them. When Paul considers the wonders of the perfect fulfillment of God's wondrous plan, which first came to man through the promise made to Eve in Genesis chapter 3.15, where he says the serpent's head would be crushed by the seed of the woman. From that moment on, from before that, but from that moment on in human history, God's wondrous plan has been laid out. What was promised through the covenants and was extended for a time to the Gentiles, all to come right back to the literal fulfillment of those things that were promised to Israel. Paul stands in awe, as if a mountain climber has just climbed Mount Everest, and he literally sees the world. Paul's answer in understanding this question, it's a question, how searchable, how unsearchable are his ways, or his judgments, and unfathomable his ways. Paul's answer is, no one could understand. No one could have seen that coming. And he stands in awe. Many in our world today, even though we have the Word of God, still don't see it coming. They still don't see that the promises will be fulfilled to Israel, literally as He promised them. They still miss that point. And Paul, at this point, praises God because God's going to fulfill His Word to Israel. And then this leads Paul into a couple other things. First, God is indeed sovereign. As such, He is the sole Creator God. Verse 34, For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become His counselor? Paul quotes directly from Isaiah forty thirteen. In this passage in Isaiah, in fact, we need to go back there just to get some of the context, context to this passage. Isaiah forty thirteen. 
Isaiah 40. Here is an amazing passage. Because Isaiah is prophesying and he is revealing the greatness of God. And every time that Israel is going to be brought out of captivity, Israel ought to understand the greatness of God. Because God is fulfilling His Word. That is where Paul is at. God is fulfilling His Word. We ought to understand the greatness of God. And so he quotes back to this passage. Isaiah chapter 14, verse 13. And this is in the the context of speaking of the creation. And as God is the sole creator, and the Scripture says there, verse 13, who has directed the Spirit of the Lord, or who has, or as His counselor has informed Him? With whom did He consult? And who gave Him understanding? And who taught Him the path of justice and taught Him knowledge and informed Him the way of, uh, informed Him in the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop in the bucket and are regarded as a speck of dust in the scales. Behold, He lifts them up in the islands like fine Dust, And we could go on and on and on, but look at verse 18. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare with Him? And we move into this incredible passage as Paul begin, or as Isaiah begins to reveal the character of God. Such a rich passage. And Paul quotes directly from it. And he uses it here in Romans to reveal that God alone is the Creator. He sought wisdom from no other source. No one gave him any more wisdom. There was none before him. Because no one could. But further, more than that, is that it is similar to what God did with Job. Because Paul is doing this with us who are Gentiles. Paul is reminding us of the greatness of God. And in fact, we're going to see a portion of what God does to Job in a moment. But Paul is reminding us that no one was there to give wisdom to God when he created. For the Gentile mind, this should cause us to reflect on the awesomeness of our great God. Sanford Mills says, We must never forget that our God is a sovereign God who acts, thinks, plans, and carries out His own program independent of fallible humanity. Where was men when God planned His program of salvation? Where was man when God carefully laid out His plans as recorded in Ephesians 1.4 as we recognize God foreknew? Where was man when the world was, when the Holy Word went forth that the Son of God would die on the cross for sin that had not yet been committed? Where was man? Where was man? You see, we tend to get arrogant and that's what Paul was warning us about. As we were coming into the end, the conclusion, understanding that we Gentiles have a time right now. But that time is coming to an end. And as Gentiles, we are get, we easily get arrogant. And Paul brings us back to this point and says, who are you to stand in front of the Creator and to tell Him that His ways are not right? Who are you? You see, God is the sole Creator. He is indeed sovereign over that. And that brings Paul to his second point back in Romans. His second point is that God is solely responsible. God is sole responsibility for all that He has. Verse 35 says this, Or who has first given to Him that it might be paid back to Him again? Paul Here quotes from the book of Job, somewhat. He changes it just a little bit. We're going to see that in just a moment. 
But the joyous reality in God's sovereignty is that there is no one that God must answer to. No one that God must answer to. You might declare that your land to be your sovereign domain, your sovereign realm, whether that is a little piece of ground or a large piece of ground. But if you had to borrow money from anyone, your statement is not quite accurate. Yeah, you determine what crop gets planted. You determine how to do so. But somebody is an authority over you. Somebody has the right to hold you accountable for that. You see, it's yours, but you have to answer to someone. And if you are truly sovereign, you have no one to answer to. And Paul is quoting the Lord in Job as he is telling Job, were you there when I laid the foundations of the earth? Were you there? Paul is bringing that discussion in. Since God is sovereign, there is no such authority over Him. He alone has sole responsibility over His creation. Notice what he says in verse 35. Or who has first given to Him that it might be paid back to Him again? This truth demands you and I to respond. Since God is our Creator, He borrowed nothing. He needs nothing from His creation. He borrowed nothing, and He needs nothing from His creation. He is sovereign. Since that is true, because He is sovereign, you as His creation are accountable to Him. And we should all give glory to Him. Not because He needs it, but because we do. You see, that changes our perspective of who God is. If we understand that all glory will be ascribed to Him, then we recognize that He doesn't need us to give it to Him. He has given you and I the opportunity to participate in doing so, though. So that you and I receive the blessings and the privilege and the joy of ascribing to Him the glory that is already His. But we can change that, and we do in our culture. In fact, when you go home today, after you've had your lunch, or maybe during lunch, you turn on the football game. What are we glorifying? Not you necessarily, but what do people glorify? That football player. That coach. Nobody glorifies the ref, so don't worry about that. But we recognize that we put glory in the wrong places, right? Paul is standing on the precipice. And he's looking back over everything that he has taught us through the first 11 full chapters of the book of Romans. And he says, you have the right, because God has given it to you, to offer glory back to Him. He is sovereign. He doesn't need you to. He doesn't need His plan to work out. He doesn't need to give the Gentiles an opportunity. He doesn't need to restore Israel, except that He promised to do so by His own word. And this causes Paul to stand in amazement. Stand in awe. God is sovereign. He is self-sufficient. He is free from any obligation except those that He has placed on Himself. He owes the Jew nothing and He owes the Gentile nothing except that which He has promised to Himself. And it is those promises that Paul looks back on and he says, Our God is an incredible God. And oh, the depth of His riches I cannot fathom. 
And then he moves on to the next aspect, the centrality of God. And again, he brings up the creation. Verse 36, For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. There are three aspects to this, and they should just jump out of the page at you. The first is, for from Him. You see, Paul is summing it all up. He's bringing this to a conclusion. Oh, the depths of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. It's unsearchable. It's unfathomable. And then he comes to this point. He reveals that God is sovereign, and now he reveals the centrality of God in everything. First, God is the Creator because everything came from Him. This is one of the central points of instrumental theology. God is the Creator. Everything that has life has life because of Him. Everything that was made was made because of Him. Nothing has been made except by Him. If you miss that one point, if you forget Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, you have bad theology for the rest of the Word of God. Creation is an issue rejected in the modern secular culture. It is often, unfortunately, abandoned by those churches in which the gospel at one time used to be preached. So why the attack? Why is the church abandoning this? Because you're not the only one who understands that creation is foundational to good theology. If you are created, you have a responsibility to the Creator God because He is sovereign. You have a responsibility and man does not want that responsibility. So man will do everything in his power with the assistance of Satan's help to do anything he can to remove the twinges of guilt concerning the creation. And this this idea that you are created and you are responsible to the Creator, this sends shudders of fear down the backs of those who do not want to know the Lord. And so they do all they can to remove it. Yet, Paul is not shuddering in fear. He is shuddering in worship. For the believer... When we consider that all things are from Him, we praise His name. Because that means that the adversities that come against us are under His power, His control. We understand that nothing will cause us to be separated from Him because He has power over it all. Because of the greatness of our Creator, we who were far can be near because He is also our Sustainer. It says, for from Him and through Him. You see, not only is everything from the Lord, but it is also through Him. Without the sustaining hand of the Lord, all would be removed. There's a line of theology that says that God started it all and then He left, let evolution and everything take over. And that God is, is really not present anymore. Agnostics hold to this view that God start, may have started it all, but He's gone. You've got a very, very serious problem. Because God is a sustainer. Remove God as a sustainer, what do you have? Nothing. Within this context, I imagine Paul, though, has in mind all of the covenants that were promised to Israel. Because God has so limited Himself He preserves His people to see the fulfillment of His Word. He preserves that remnant. He preserves that little aspect of Israel so that one day He can bring all of Israel back. 
that all of Israel might be saved. Those who are alive at the time, not all who have died. Listen to last week's message for that, that explanation. But we recognize that God preserves His people to see the fulfillment of His Word. If it were up to men to be the sustainer, what would happen to Israel? Turn on the news today and watch any story related to Israel. If it were up to men to sustain Israel, what would happen to Israel? Well, Armadidijad wouldn't have even had a chance to wipe them off the map. There would have been dozens of opportunities before then or more. Israel would be removed. If it were up to men to be the sustainer of all things, including the salvation of Gentiles, would we have salvation? No. You see, but it is not man who is the sustainer of the world. God is the sustainer of all things, including the salvation of the Gentiles and the preservation of the promises given to Israel. Therefore, this truth should cause the heart of the faithful in the Lord to praise His holy name in a world of uncertainty about everything from gas prices to the next president. It is a joyous thing to know that your salvation and my salvation is secure, that it is held by the only Creator, Sustainer God. And no one has the right to challenge that. No one can say, no, I've got this note and you owe me now. No, because He is sovereign. Final aspect. God is heir of everything. Heir of everything. This is the last portion here of the chapter. It says, For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. God is the finisher of all things. That's what I mean by heir. He is the finisher. He is the completer of all things. All things that are done are done to fulfill His perfect plan and will. So He is the Creator, and He is the Finisher. Sound like a passage we've heard in the past? Out of Revelation? I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, and everything in between. One commentator summarizes these three elements by saying these three Prepositions indicate that God is the creator, the sustainer, and heir of everything. It's source, means, and goal. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. For this reason, Paul responds to words that should be on the tips of our tongues at all times. He says this, to Him be the glory forever. Amen. It's complete. Finished. God's glory will be ascribed to Him. Will you be one willing to give it to Him? For this reason, we must ascribe to Him glory as the, He is the only one worth and deserving, worthy of and deserving of it. What amazes me is we've seen the heart of the Apostle throughout these three chapters. We've seen the heart of the Apostle Paul from, go from brokenness for the people of Israel in chapter 9 to hope for their salvation in chapter 10 to joy in chapter 11 as he announces that all Israel will be saved as we observed last week to today. Responding in humble awe, reverence and worship to the Lord. These final words of these three chapters of Israelology burst out in praise, love, and joy. His amen 
comes as a fitting conclusion and challenge to affirm along with Him, the glory belongs to the Lord, and it is His alone. Let's not ascribe it to ourselves. When we consider history and we understand the history that is written in the Word of God, but is yet future for us, you and I should realize that God's plans are perfect. That they will never fail. That they will do as He has set them to do. And because of that, you and I should respond. That would be the prudent thing to do. The competent thing to do is to respond. And to give Him the glory that is rightly His. That He has given us an opportunity to ascribe to Him. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we do thank You and praise You for Your Word. Lord, it is a fitting conclusion to these three chapters of Israelology. As we prepare to move into Romans chapter 12 next week, as we prepare to offer ourselves as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to You, I pray that we would not forget these four verses at the end of chapter 11. Lord, just like Job, You have walked us through an understanding, asking us the question, were You there? And Lord, we can attest that You alone are sovereign. That You alone are holy, perfect, just, righteous. That Your will will be accomplished. It will be satisfied. And as such, we recognize that this causes us to live our lives in a different way than we walked in today. It is a reminder, yes, but it is a challenge as well. And I pray that we would glorify Your name together as a family of believers. That we would live our lives, that we would say our words, that we would fellowship together in such a way as reflecting the glory that belongs to You and to You alone. Recognizing that this day is short and that the time of the Gentiles is about to close. I pray that we would not waste one moment, one day, in completing and giving You the glory that is rightly Yours. Sharing the Gospel with those that do not know You as Savior and living out true biblical fellowship among each other and among You. Lord, we give You the glory and the honor for it. In all of these things, we praise Your name. Amen.